In this episode, I'm once again joined by Daizan Skinner, a British Zen Roshi trained in both the Soto and Rinzai schools of Zen. Daizan reveals the iconic Zen training technique of the koan and its manifold uses within the tradition. Daizan explains how waking up works, how he diagnoses his students' enlightenments, and why he's very demanding on his trainee teacher's psychological maturity. Daizan also discusses how awakening relates to moral purification, why so many famous Zen teachers have engaged in abusive behavior, and reveals the esoteric energy and health practices of the Rinzai Zen lineage. So without further ado, Daizan Skinner. So one of the characteristics of your training, as you described it, with Shinzan Roshi, was the use of koan. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences of the koan method as a way of training? Hmm. Okay, so the koan system as I encountered it, um, hmm, it's a, it's a, um, I think it's probably one of the sort of genius constructions of human creativity and ingenuity. And unfortunately, it's largely submerged. Not all that many people have been through it and certainly not enough to get a sense of the the um, the, uh, the fiendish cleverness really of the whole thing. So basically, um, the uh, as as I encountered it, I, I've just done one uh, thread of koan study, and I did a tiny bit in in Soto, but but it was very de-emphasized. So you have two within Japan. You have two major streams of koan study you have what's called the Inzan line and the Takuju line. Now, um, you've also got koan study in, in China uh, and Korea as well. Now, if you go to, for example, Korea, they'll give you one question, one koan. What is this? I think is a very uh, prominent sort of favorite. And you'll kind of study that one. That will be the, the focus point of your meditation for life. And um, they'll use other questions and other um, histories and so on when they're sort of testing an understanding when you've had some kind of shift but you'll go back to your what is this and you know we have hundreds of years of that working really really well so that's obviously one way that it's done now within Japan within these two streams you have the um, the Inzan line which is kind of um, uh, has got uh, um, a lot of different things that we study, but the Takaju line, the other one, the, the main difference, as far as I understand it, is that they use a lot of quotations in their responses to particular koans. So, for example, you might be studying the koan, um, uh, okay, you know the sound of two hands, what is the sound of one hand? And you'll you'll use that as a as a um, as your direction of attention in your practice, your your essentially your um, your continue to, to to focus on that like a cat at a mouse hole until you and the koan are not two different things, and something amazing happens at that point because I suppose perhaps the great secret of all this work is that when you become one with any one thing, including the koan, you become one with everything. And so you, as it were, you enter the world of the one hand. You, you directly um, abide there, if you like. So, okay, so then maybe your teacher uh, approves of that and accepts that. So then, um, to a small extent within the Inzen line, but a considerable extent within Takaju, you then, there's a sort of a, a kind of a reference book that you keep in your sleeve that's got loads of kind of quotations. A lot of it's from um, Tang Dynasty poetry, which is the sort of like the, the high point of the Chinese poetic tradition, really. So you go and find a line out of one of these poems or, or a Zen quote or whatever that also kind of expresses this, um, this shift that you've encountered, that you've actually embodied. And, uh, and then you, you have to go through this book. And again, you bring these sort of 
quotations to your teacher until you find the one that, that he accepts. Now, we have a certain amount of that in the Takaju line, but they have a lot uh, in, in the Inzan line, but they have a lot in Takaju, as far as I understand. So, basically, the, the point is that, um, um, particularly as the study goes on, you're learning to, as it were, bring the well, they often say to bring heaven and earth together. So essentially, if you can think of, for example, our way of thinking, our way of forming concepts, our way of using language, um, it's all based in the world of subject-object. If you like, the world of the two hands, this against that. Ultimately, little old you against the great big hostile universe. And so, um, learning how to, as it were, embody and then express that non-truth within the structures of dualism and separation and so on is, is, is a big part of the, the Cohen curriculum. And finding these both direct um, embodiments, if you like, or responses to these, um, these uh, predicaments or these, these um, scenarios, but then also finding these quotations as also a way of essentially beginning to think and express the truth poetically. And um, you, you, you go through, over the years of your practice, you go through this book hundreds of times until more and more and more of these quotations start to kind of stick. And so when you begin to teach, you've got this kind of reservoir of um, of ways, if you like, of expressing this this non-separative or non non-dual, perhaps we could say, uh, understanding. So, um, so you start off in the process in in koan study uh, with a bunch of these um, these koans or these questions, these these um, scenarios, which are um, basically require a, a direct entry into into this non-separative reality or, or this non-separative um, mindset, perhaps we could say. Uh, you've got a bunch of those. They call those Hoshin koans. And Hoshin, Hoshin means um, uh, Dharma body, the, uh, the Dharma body. Essentially, uh, you, it's a, sort of goes back to the um, uh, Mahayana Buddhist teaching in which the, the Dharma body of the Buddha is, if you like, the Buddhahood that's present or the enlightenment that's present in every moment, in everything. So we want to enter that world of universal Buddhahood, if you like. That's that's the start point. And then, um, and then there's a whole um, uh, sort of um, uh, hundreds, basically, of, of subsidiary or, or follow-on questions which enable you to, as it were, differentiate within the non-differentiated to, as it were, bring together, well, on a personal level, you could say that, that the, 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 the early practice is very, very non-intellectual. It's, it's very much about dethroning the intellect, about allowing the, uh, the, the, um, that sort of inner little control freak to, as it were, take a subsidiary place. But then later on, you're learning how to bring this holistic understanding and this um, separative or intellectual understanding together. And some of the later koans, you're even writing essays, you're writing poems of your own. Um, and there's basically a whole sort of education, really, embodied within the system. So that by the time you come out at the end of it, um, you should have, um, if it's done right, you should have a very, very um, grounded sense of, uh, of, the, of these two dimensions, if you like, and how they sort of can interact. Because it's seen as not enough that um, you just enter that non-dual or non-separative world. Um, uh, a dog does that, as far as we can tell. And it's a beautiful thing, of course, um, but a dog has, um, in a sense, no option other than to be an absolutely perfect dog, you know, uh, to be the universe manifesting in, in doggy form, if you like. Um, but what a dog 
doesn't seem to be able to do, that you and I can do, is we can do that too, but we can also take a step back. We can also admire this gobsmackingly amazing, beautiful, crazy universe as well. We can, as it were, be the eyes of the universe. And so we can actually take, as it were, both positions. And so my teacher's first website, or at least the first website that I was ever familiar with, he called it not1not2.com. We don't settle anywhere. It's like we encompass, if you like, both uh, a sort of a, um, uh, and, and the whole koan system um, is, a, is really a means that again and again and again, you come back to, to uh, different dimensions, different perspectives, if you like. Um, and uh, so it, it, um, uh, it, it's a, um, it's a, um, it's like a scheme of development, at least the way it's developed there in Japan. That's very interesting. In our first interview, you talked in detail about the four stages of insight mm -hmm. from stream entry through to Arhat, and you recounted some of your experiences that matched up with some of those uh, path attainments. And often in the Zen literature, koan is uh, an entry to Kensho, so is sometimes it's getting hit with a stick and, you know, by the teacher and so on. But there's all different sorts of uh, interesting ways. But I noticed that you recounted three major shifts. None of them was directly related to koan. And it seems you're, you're talking about here koan having not only a direct insight function, but also some sort of integrative function between mm -hmm. insight and operating. And also maybe even a, a means of teacher training or a means of a communication of insight. So I'm curious if you could perhaps compare Kensho or uh, Satori, things of this nature, to the four-path model, if you see where they might map in, and also what you've noticed in terms of your students achieving insight and path shifts and so on, in terms of the many different methods, uh, what have you noticed being uh, statistically the most likely to be the thing you're doing when you have a path shift? Okay, okay. All right, well, um, so I think there's, a, there's an image... That, that resonates very strongly with me. I think it's it's back in Buddha Gosha, in uh, uh, which is a Theravadan practice manual from about the fifth century, and uh, he has this image of um, a uh, you've got a, a river, you've got a tree, and you've got a rope hanging from a tree branch, and you so you're holding onto the rope, and you push out over the river, and you push out, and you kind of swing the rope. And at a certain point, there's a letting go, and you're across the river. Now, obviously, without the pushing out, without the intentionality, you hold on to the rope, you let go, you're going to end up exactly where you started. Um, if you only push out without any letting go, you're also not going to get anywhere. And I think that unpacks it quite nicely. Um, the image in Zen, the oldest image to my knowledge, um, that sort of unpacks it um, clearly is the uh, the one that's right at the beginning of the Zen text called the Momonkan, the, the gate of Mu or the open gate or the empty gate, sometimes called. And the image is um, you've arrived at a village and it's after dark. They've already locked the gate. And so you pick up a stone from the side of the road and you knock and you listen and you knock and you listen, and you just keep on doing that. And at a certain point, somebody gets out of bed, I don't know, gets dressed, goes down the stairs, whatever, comes and opens the gate. Now, um, uh, the, I think this, this unpacks the process, as far as I can understand it, as, uh, as clearly as it probably can be. So you get certain people who say, well, um, any intentionality is uh, is effectively what you should do is go and just sit by the gate, meditate your little tail off by the gate. And of course, now and again, the gate does open. You know, um, it's uh, it's a low chance of success. Most people um, don't succeed in that approach, uh, but some do. A few do. Um, on the other hand. Um, you get types who are very into the intentionality, 
into the knocking, if you like. But the trouble is then, when they're knock, 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 they're so focused on the knocking that even as the gate opens, they can't enter. You know what I mean? They, they're stuck. Um, so the, the combination, the, 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 the magic formula, seems to be the both, the knocking and the listening, the intentionality and the openness. And in um, properly done Cohen study, you've got both of those elements. Because the thing is, you can't open the gate. You, you can't make it happen. But you can set up the conditions. And uh, Cohen study is a very, very good way to set up the conditions, particularly for that first opening in the gate. Um, we do a, a, um, a 64 hour retreat, like a long weekend retreat that's entirely focused on really getting that process working for people. And typically we get about 60% of the people who come get it in that 64 hour period, get that first step in the gate, if you like. We've even had things like, um, I remember a lady came one time and there'd been some crossed wires or something and she thought it was like a spa weekend. She'd come with her little swimming trunks and all that and thought she was going to be getting facials and all that. Anyway, I explained to her, she'd never meditated before, I explained to her what we were doing and um, she decided to join in and uh, she got it. She still practices with us now. Um, so it's not that hard to do uh, if you get, as it were, the formula right. But within the formula, you don't make it happen. You just, as it were, you set up the conditions. Now, within that sort of thing, um, that exact moment of opening the gate, um, some people get it when they're actually sat on their cushion in, if you like, a formal pr uh, practice modality. But I would say the majority of people actually get it um, you know, when uh, they just walk through a doorway and boom, there it is. Or it's almost like they, the, the practice has created a potentiality, a, a, a sort of a, um, a spiritual pregnancy is, is frequent image that's used. And then just something happens and uh, there they are. And sometimes that can be um, something of a sort of a dimmer switch quality and sometimes it's like a light switch turning on turning off sometimes it's kind of emotional you know people start crying or laughing or dancing around the garden all that kind of stuff and other times it's very peaceful it's almost like oh oh you know it's kind of like um no great sort of emotional catharsis or whatever but because anyway none of that's terribly important because all of that wears off the thing that tends not to wear off, if it's real, is that um, shift in in um, that shift in awareness, if you like. Um, so um, uh, I find myself saying to people very frequently, it's not in itself an experience, um, although there are often experiences around it. It's a shift in the way you relate to all experiences, and that, if it's real, then is yours. It doesn't wear off. It's something that. You know, you've got it. Once you've got it, you've got it. Once you've seen blue, you've seen blue. You know, it's like, it's done, done deal. I'm curious what your diagnostic criteria are if you have a process that you go through with somebody if they, when they come to you. I understand in the Zen tradition, it is traditional to report your insight to a senior teacher of some sort, your teacher or whoever you can find. Um, so that I presume is part of your role. Which diagnostic criteria do you have? What's your what's your process? Well, they have a saying in Zen: a thief recognizes a thief. So um, I remember I, I lived in Newcastle for a while, and I knew a lady up there who'd um, she'd been a heroin addict in London. She'd moved up to Newcastle to get away from it all, you know. And uh, I remember she said to me, you know, one time she could step into a pub. And in one glance, she could pick out the junkies, boom, 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 you know. And uh, so there's something of that, something of that, you know, and that's traditionally the way. Personally, what I like to do is I just give people the goalposts. I say, well, you know, the Buddha's take on this is, um, uh, he says there's basically three criteria, if you like, for uh, uh, that first step in the gate. Um, 
you've seen through the optical illusion of me as a fixed, solid billiard ball rolling across the table of life. That is so clearly not how it is. It's just laughable. Okay, is that true? Doubt. No doubt about it. A little bit like um, my view is it's a bit like um, when you're seven years old, you've worked out that Father Christmas doesn't exist. And once you've got that, um, doesn't matter how many Christmas cards you get with big red jolly guys on, you're vanishingly unlikely to start believing in Father Christmas again. You don't need to remind yourself. You don't need to chant Father Christmas mantras. When you got it, you got it. You know, so there's that. There's no doubt about it. And then the third thing, um, you know that this isn't a matter of rites, rituals or righteousness. It's not a matter of a particular form of ceremony or magic or, or, or being a good person even. It's simply a matter of seeing how things are clearly enough. That's it. Buddha put it out there. Check it out for yourself, you know. And, um, you know, there's... Uh, I, I, I don't want to stand in anybody's way. If that's true for them, that's true for them. And um, and and if it ain't, it ain't. I mean, there there can be um, there can sometimes be. I suppose where probably where you know I'm a little bit more involved really is there are situations where somebody's absolutely convinced they've got it, and actually they haven't, or they they're actually there, but they just can't quite see it. It's like they just, and those kind of um, sort of boundary type situations, I suppose. I, I think I can probably help a bit there. Because um, um, sometimes you can just give somebody that little bit of a nudge to just, you know what I mean? That sort of stuff. Um, uh, but, you know, probably even somebody is, uh, you know, I mean, I'm probably pretty incompetent around this area. There's probably people way, way more skilled around all that sort of sort of thing. But even with the broad brush stuff that I tend to do, it's not that hard to do. It's really not that hard. So, so we get lots of people who who get that first step in the door. But you know, I mean, it's perfectly possible to have that genuine understanding, to have it in a, if you like, a permanent way, and still um, the um, the uh, the uh, the forces of inadequacy or or what traditionally greed if you like or or wanting and the forces of aversion you know the hatred type stuff to be utterly untouched so you could still have somebody who's really a pretty nasty piece of work and they've still got you know a genuine understanding so it ain't the end of the story by by a long chalk there's still a lot to be done and while that can be done relatively rapidly. Um, or in fact, very rapidly, um, the um, the subsequent stuff, the dealing with those, if you like, instinctual forces of push pull and so on, seems to take really some engagement and really some time. Seems like you're using that ten fetter model for your diagnosis there, and those those fetters are later path shifts, more directly attack those particular That's right, yeah. fetters. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, there's plenty of other um, um, roadmaps, if you like. Um, we use the um, the ox herding pictures a bit. You know, that that's sort of within the actual process of, um, of of going on that journey. That one works pretty nicely. I found people find that fairly helpful uh, as a way of sort of navigating. Um, and um, but some some of the some of the sort of you know uh, the, 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 if you like the high Mahayana stuff is so sublime so extraordinary that um uh, it just pe people don't really find it relatable and that includes me you know it's like it's uh, you know it's so extraordinary so trans mundane that i'm not sure how valuable that is well i'd like to ask you about that actually but first you mentioned a thief recognizes a thief and you used the example of the heroin addict who could spot a junkie and Often, when a heroin addict spots another heroin addict, uh, there is a sense of I just know. But depending on, uh, you know, how aware of how they know, they can often actually detail exactly what it is. The something about the body language, so, something about the way in which one's self is relating to, to to the environment. There are some markers I think that one could uh, one could even learn to identify when one isn't 
a heroin addict. Um, maybe if there was a recognized a heroin addict school run by uh, ex-heroin addicts, they could train you to see things the way they see things. I'm curious, when you say thief recognizes a thief, other than the fetters, what are the small things that you notice? I wish I could give you an analytical list. I wish I could. Um, uh, I don't think I can, really. But uh, um, it's... I, I suppose that's one of the reasons why the training is as it is, because um, that's, you know, it's certainly with Cohen study and so on, um, uh, that's part of what's going on. Some of the later Cohen's that you study uh, involve people who are, if you like, in various shades of um, awakening and delusion and so on. So you're studying them, as it were, with your teacher. More than that, um, um, I remember, for example, um, I, I got to visit a, the, the, the very first monastery that my, my teacher became a monk in one time, and um, uh, I, uh, I, was, um, I was present at a talk that the, the, the Roshi of that temple gave, and um, hmm, it just didn't, um, I mean, you know, the words were all there, but it seemed like the music wasn't. So I, you know, I went back and talked to my teacher about it, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's right." You know, not everybody's, um, um, you know, not everybody's in the same place. Um, and so um, it's, it's, um, it's. Uh, how can I say? Uh, it's. Uh, I'd, I'd love to be able to just give you the, the ten, the ten sure signs. Uh, and I don't. I really don't think I can. I don't think I can. But um, uh, right in the point of it happening, it can be very, very, very obvious, very clear. Um, and one of the most beautiful things, perhaps one of the most sublime things a human being can experience, is another human being waking up right in front of their eyes. It's akin to being present at a birth. Or, or, or being present at a death. And um, one of the beautiful things about this 64-hour um, retreat that we do is people are face-to-face -face a lot of the time. And um, uh, this is very contagious. So when you've got, even if you're really stuck in the mud, you've got somebody in front of you who's radiating that reality, who's speaking from that reality, embodying that reality. It certainly rattles the cage if it doesn't actually do the job with this person. And, uh, you know, actually, um, there's a sort of a, um, a contagion, as it were, within it all, which is very powerful. And, uh, and, and actually, one of the reasons why, from way, way back, why um, Zen monasteries are set up the way they are, why people sit close together, why they're not, you know, you could easily have everybody go and sit in their own little cells or something like that. But no, they pack them in together like like um, sardines in a tin. And, um, you know, you, you stick them in a place where this has happened. I mean, if you've been in an old zendo where you've had maybe, I don't know, a couple of hundred, 300 years worth of people do this stuff within, there's a power there. You know, and that that can have an effect as well. Um, you know, if you're around a teacher who's pretty on beam, if that teacher's got some some good assistants who are also on beam, there's a there's a there's a lot that you can do to sort of increase the likelihood. Um, uh, I mean, the key thing, of course, is somebody really having that intentionality, that wanting to do it, to to you know, to, for this to be there. Their, their purpose and their, their, their direction. But there's a, there's a fair bit that you can do around the edges to sort of um, uh, increase the odds, if you like. Does that increase the odds or reduce the odds? I'm never sure how that works. Make it more likely. Set and setting, isn't that what they say? Set and setting. Set and setting. Yeah, that's what the um, hippies of the 60s uh, said. You know, when you're going to go on a grand LSD journey, as was done by many hippies who eventually became Zen masters, actually, in America in particular. I think there's a long history of that. They always talked about set and setting. Set is the context and setting is the place and the immediate environment. That's very interesting.
Yeah, yeah, can certainly help. Mind you, you know, it seems that um, a ton of people have done this on battlefields. Uh, you know, um, in all kinds of um, situations, and uh, um, and and in fact, as as we mentioned, um, you know, that's not it's not that uncommon that somebody you know sort of primes the pump and then uh, they're sat on the toilet. Or we've had a striking number of people get it in the middle of the night. You know, they they literally wake up, sit up in bed, boom, there it is. Or even as they fall asleep, or even in the dream. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that is fascinating. You mentioned that some of the loftier Mahayana accounts or Mahayana doctrines about what's possible on the path can be a little difficult to relate to, even for you. And there is, I think, often different opinions about the degree to which moral perfection, let's say, is possible in terms of awakening. Uh, I've I've heard some people take a very traditional route that interpret the Ten Fetters very traditionally, so that by the time one is reaching second, third, fourth path, one has completely expunged all desire, all craving and aversion, and is incapable of various different acts, like even having sex, for instance. That's certain, some, some people go that, very, that way. Others say that actually, uh, this would be the other radical view, I think, that these four paths are, represent a perceptual shift or a shift in awareness, as you, as you mentioned that don't necessarily, may have some sort of knock-on effect in terms of, of, of moral action, but aren't uh, necessarily on the same axis of development. So I'm curious, yourself, you mentioned second and uh, hinted at third path um, in your uh, previous account, but you mentioned that the moral perfection models that sometimes one sees in very traditional Theravada or, or the lofty end of Mahayana, as you said, I'm curious if you perhaps can comment on that, where you sit in that spectrum or how you see that whole idea. Um, of course, we also know, I think, of great, highly enlightened Roshis, Lamas, and so on, well regarded, but who have done at least, let's say, morally ambiguous things. There's a long history of that. It seems to be almost any master who lives long enough, is, <laughs> who's famous enough, comes out somehow, you know. So I'm curious about how you see that whole interaction of uh, perceptual shifts, awareness shifts, the experience of craving and aversion and moral conduct as as it's defined even in the Mahayana. Because I understand if we talk about moral moral conduct, we're opening a bit of a philosophical kind of worms there, what is morality and so on. But even in the Mahayana, even in the tradition, there's a moral code, I think. So uh, anyway, can you make something of that? I've shot a whole bunch of rounds at you. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, it's very important, I think. So... <clears throat> um, as part of this process of kind study that we talked about, towards the end, getting near the end of the whole thing, um, you study the, uh, the precepts, the, the moral code of Zen as, uh, as koans. And of course, you know, we're all facing these really. For example, do not kill, the not killing precept. So, okay, maybe you don't murder people, maybe you don't walk around murdering people, great. But then what about animals? But then what about plants? You know, lettuce leaves have life. And if you don't even eat those, then you end up killing yourself. And sometimes I get this with students. People come and essentially what they're coming for is they want me to, um, to give them the pat on the head. You know, they're, yep, you're a good boy. Yep, you got it. Yep, nice, nice. And, uh, and uh, and and not frequently, but but not uncommonly, they do have a pretty nice, genuine understanding. But also, they um, they're liars. They don't do what they say they're going to do. They're um, uh, they're um, uh, they're riven with jealousy. They're unbelievably ambitious, um, and it's like they can kind of focus so much on this beautiful understanding and it's like they just they don't want to see any of that and so i'm kind of going yeah but what about and they're going what about yeah but what about yeah but what about and we get this um they, they talk in zen about two arrows in midair that miss you know and most often um people like that unfortunately they'll end up um uh, it's happened to me somebody emailed me yesterday who who some years ago said to me, you're blind, you're blind, because I wouldn't acknowledge this bit, because this bit was uh, 
um, well, basically, they were, uh, you know, particularly if they ended up taking the role of a teacher, they were going to be doing harm. They were going to, um, because that unaddressed stuff inevitably, absolutely inevitably, gets dumped on the students. Um, and so, um, uh, uh, maybe somebody has an amazing understanding and they're still a nasty piece of work. They're going to cause harm, almost inevitably, almost, as far as I can see. I can't really see how that's not going to happen. Maybe, maybe they can in some way seal it off, but I don't think so. There's a, there's a really nice book I recommend, the, the guys that I'm training to be teachers. Um, um, it's called The Drama of the Gifted Child. It's, it's, it's really slim. It's probably less than 100 pages. Um, and it's really written by a psychotherapist for psychotherapists, showing in incredible, just gobsmacking clarity how the stuff that you don't deal with, you end up, in, in her example, you end up dumping on your clients, completely unconsciously and with the best will in the world. And I think it's completely the same in this, in this arena as well. So, um, so part of what I'm doing, I think, is, is helping people, you know, in that, in that realm. As I say, good chance in most cases that they'll go off and find somebody else to give them the pat on the head. Um, and unfortunately, the world has got another person causing harm out there. Um, but sometimes people are open enough to, um, to um, take on board what you're trying to point at. Can you think of an example that could be hypothetical or real of a way in which somebody with some some insight, let's put it that way, but with this other stuff on the side might in a Zen context or a spiritual or meditation teaching context end up dumping that on the students with the best will in the world unintentionally, for example? Hmm. So. Um, all right. A classic example. And, you know, you've probably seen this multiple times, very, very common. Okay, the teacher's done so far, and they've got a good student. Okay, a student who's done so far. This teacher, in some cases, in many cases, if they haven't dealt with their stuff, is going to make it their mission to clip the wings of that student. They're going to see all of that in terms of pride, ego, or whatever, when Sometimes it is, but not always, not always. So um, the, uh, the teacher, if they succeed in, in doing what they're unconsciously intending to do, stunts the student. All right, so you also received Inca transmission from Shinzan whilst you're in Japan, and shortly before you returned to the UK to teach. Can you talk about the significance of having received Inca transmission from Shinzan in that context? Mm -hmm. It's like somebody puts a heavy rucksack on your shoulders. Basically, it's like, uh, okay, it's down to you to find the next generation. That's it, really. Um, uh, so uh, you've got to the point where your teacher um, is, um, uh, you know, basically um, giving you that job. You've got to, you've got to, um, there's a sort of a conception of a lineage, if you like, and, and you now have the duty, if you like, to, to uh, put yourself out there enough to, um, to find um, the, next, the next person in the line. One of my dear, dear friends in Japan studied with a, um, a beautiful Soto Zen master who, uh, he'd been a, kama, a kamikaze pilot in the war. And uh, the war ended very suddenly before he got to, to um, fly his mission. So he was kind of officially a dead man, as it were, and uh, had a terrible sort of um, struggle, sort of readjusting to society, but did very well, practiced very sincerely, ended up in a Zen monastery. For the first three years, he didn't even lie down. He was very, very assiduous in his practice, became a beautiful Zen master. Um, he was the Roshi of a, of a temple up in the north of Japan for, I think, a little bit over half a century. In all that time, he couldn't find a successor. 
he couldn't find the next generation. He couldn't find a person who he could hand it on to. That's kind of very sad, really, isn't it? But um, but it does happen. But um, but uh, at least the uh, commitment is there to try to uh, to do what you can to um, to pass it on to uh, find the next you know the next uh, the next the next bit of pipe in the pipeline that you can screw on the end, as it were. You mentioned the unfortunate situation of that teacher who Shinzam was very close with dying before passing the mantle on to him. And then due for the political reasons of the fellow he'd upset in the last monastery, it got blocked. Is that the same as Inca transmission in that case? Or had Shinzan received Inca transmission prior to that? So basically, um, that teacher in Arba Shinden had told everybody, he'd, he'd sort of made it all public. Um, so the actual paperwork hadn't been done and uh, but that's that's the case in multiple situations even um you know zen master hakuin who's the big you know the big sort of inspiration in the rinzai zen line in the last few hundred years he had no paperwork you know he he uh, so it's that's it's pretty common um so the uh, the um the Inca, I mean, it literally means that seal, you know, as in, as in like, a, you know, like, you know, like prime beef um, sort of thing. Um, that's taken various forms over the centuries. So in some cases, um, uh, there's been like a, a passing on of, uh, of a particular book, like the Platform Sutra, the, um, the uh, teachings of the sixth ancestor was sometimes used as a, like a transmission document. Sometimes the teacher gives a picture of themselves. Um, sometimes a, a, a relic of a, of a previous teacher, um, and uh, um, sometimes just a purely verbal thing. These days, most often, you know, and you know, it, it's a, it's a, essentially a bit of paper with a little bit of calligraphy on, and a, you know, a, and a seal and stuff. Um, and um, uh, you know, it's kind of done that way. Um, and institutionally, it's sort of, you know, if uh, if um, you know, the fact that the paperwork wasn't there meant that um, that teacher, that scenario that, that we talked about, um, was able to um, sort of, you know, pull the strings in the background so that um, um, Zen Master Shinzen um, couldn't become uh, the, um, the, uh, um, the uh, abbot of that particular seminary. Now, if, if, if that guy hadn't done that, he would have done, you know, and it would have all carried on. So um, it's, it's all, you know, a little bit more ambiguous than, um, than sometimes people sort of make it out to be. Um, but basically, you know, it's, it's that business of um, you are now expected to um, not only, uh, you know, enjoy your own little core of the universe, but you've, you've got to try to find... Uh, somebody who or, or some number of people who 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 will um you know carry it on have you given inca yet to any of your students no no i'm a bit of a bastard really i'm i'm a bit of a fuss pot i i uh, i uh, it's uh, i've had people study with me for over a decade now and some of them i've named as junior teachers um or two in fact uh, well three in fact two of them have lasted the course um, and uh, you know, I'm seeing people who I I I, I could um, I can see as senior teachers, uh, and then um, it would be another stage again um, to be a successor. And uh, I'm you know I hope so I hope so I'd very much like to take this damn rucksack off. Let me tell you, um, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna um, water it down. I'm uh, I'm not gonna do it till the time's right. What do you mean when you say you're a bit of a bastard and a bit of a fuss pot? What are some of the standards that you just don't compromise on that some of these people, even who've been around for 10 years? This stuff that we talked about, you know, if somebody's got unfinished business that particularly is, uh, there's any danger or risk that, I mean, well, there's always risk, there's always danger, but, you know, um, clear and present danger, shall we say, that uh, that's going to get dumped on the students, going to cause harm to the students. Um, then uh, you know I'm I'm happy to wait. I'm happy you know that we 
we um, we work on that. We sort that. We deal with that. Do you miss the monastery? Having lived in those monasteries for so long in Japan, very small, remote, very few people there. Now you're in London, and outside of, from what I understand, a monastic context, you're living sort of solo uh, teacher. Do you miss that life? Hmm. Well, you know, so nowadays I live in a ex-council flat just around the corner from the dojo here. And um, monastery life is a is a soap opera, really. Human beings, regardless of the haircut they've got, remain human beings. And, uh, you know, uh, it's um, one of the images they use in, in Zen is the image of a of, uh, you know, one of these situations where you you get a handful of pebbles from the beach and you put them in one of these kind of revolving drums, these rock tumblers, and they they grind against each other. And then, you know, weeks, months later, out come these beautiful jewels. And and monastery life is set up that way. It's uh, uh, it's um, there, there's no space. I mean, for the first seven years, I had three feet by six feet of living space with another guy here, another guy here, and you've got a couple of cupboards. Bottom one's your bedding, top one's your clothes, and that's it. That's where you live, where you sit, where you sleep, where you have some meals, and basically there's nowhere to hide. And um, so so nowadays, you know, I've got this front door, you know. My life is peaceful, pretty much, you know. Um, it's uh, it's kind of nice. Um, I, I kind of like it. The ongoing um, soap opera, if you like, of um, of uh, monastery life. Um, well, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, but but uh, uh, you know, I've 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 never seen it let up. I've never seen that that human being thing somehow fade into some sort of blissful pink glory or whatever you know it's uh, it seems to be not that not the way and um uh it's 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 powerful we have a saying um buddhas appear troublesomely and ancestors teach in detail it's like that person who's completely driving you up the wall at that moment pushing your buttons like you wouldn't believe is actually offering you an opportunity because this stuff that we're carrying around can only get dealt with as it arises. We can't deal with any of it in the abstract. And so in that sense, that person pushing your buttons is the Buddha of the moment. They're, they're, they're offering you this, this opportunity to deal with your pain, your suffering, and so on. Um, and so, you know, that, that does work. It, uh, but the same dynamic, as far as I can tell, is at play in family life as well, you know, and anything where you stick human beings in close quarters with each other. And uh, it, it's, it's tremendously valuable. And we live in a very atomized world now. Fairly untypical now. One bod in a little flat, you know, own front door. Maybe I get a bit of <laughs> coming through the floor at the weekends or whatever. That's about the extent of my irritation, you know, from, you know, other human beings. Um, and so, you know, you could say I'm, I'm missing out on some stuff there. And um, maybe that's true. Maybe I'll see at some point, you know, that I'm, I'm sliding a whole realm of suffering and avoiding it. Maybe I probably am. Um, and I need to, I need something a little bit less comfortable. Um, but for now, it's sort of working, you know, it's working fine. And I've got a ton of other work on. And, and I've been, the last five years, I've been, um, I've been writing quite a bit. And it's, it's a great setting for that, I find. You know, I, I, uh, I'm not very good at, at that whole writing thing. And having that bit of space and solitude helps me to sort of drag out whatever you know, whatever stuff is going to actually get put on paper. That's fascinating. So earlier you talked about a category of practice, which is not universally, as you put in your book, Practical Zen, not universally accepted in all of the Zen schools, but does have a historical precedent. It's very fascinating. This uh, Rikan-Naikan bifurcation of practices. You talked about in your previous monastery, how you noticed a lot of the senior monks were getting pretty worn down and quite sick 
having ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, as, as it's known in the States. And you were looking for, when you went to Japan, when you eventually ended up in Japan, you were looking for some practices, the Nikan, I suppose, that would address health or energetic side of things. In your book, Practical Zen, you talk about Hakuin, learning from the, the hermit Hakuyushi, uh, these sorts of practices. Can you talk a little bit about that category of practice, maybe giving a couple of examples? Sure, sure, sure. Well, shall I tell the story? Would that be useful for your people? Yeah, it's a great story. That would be awesome. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay, okay so um, uh, we're talking 250 years ago, roughly. So um, there was this very keen young um, Zen aspirant who came to be called Hakuin, became a Zen monk quite young, um, and um, had a tremendous fear of death and after death, what was going to happen, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so goes off basically on the road seeking for um, liberation, seeking for a teacher and gets very disappointed, very disillusioned really. Zen at that time uh, is short on really good teachers. So he ends up um, <clears throat> kind of doing a, doing a do-it-yourself job really. Um, his, uh, he has a kind of a version of practical Zen but he does it from a, a Chinese kind of Zen manual that's a sort of almost like a teach yourself Zen book and and uh, he kind of goes off has a solitary retreat in a in a storehouse behind the temple he's living in and um, he gets it he, he gets a he gets an understanding and because there's nobody around to sort of help him along um, you know bearing in mind the stuff we mentioned previously he has a tremendous um, I guess what a psychotherapist, uh, particularly a Jungian type, would call inflation. He starts to think of himself as the most enlightened thing since sliced bread, and he's kind of strutting about, you know, and and um, uh, anyway, uh, he, he ends up, uh, by a kind of combination of circumstances, he ends up in front of a good teacher who's able to sort of, um, as it were, eventually pop that bubble and, uh, as it were, get him back on the, on the, uh, on the path of um, genuine practice and, uh, and, and continuing uh, development. He has another uh, pretty pivotal, uh, important sort of shift. Um, and then he's back on the road again. He doesn't spend very long with this teacher, only about eight months or so. And then not long after this, so he's young, he's only in his early, probably 24, early mid-twenties. Um, he starts to kind of run out of steam. He starts to find himself, well, I can read you the account if you like. Good old Hakuin, he's very graphic. And, um, uh, oh, here we go. I'll hit it straight off. Before a month had passed, my heart overheated and, and scorched my lungs. My legs felt as cold as icy snow. I constantly heard noises in the ears as if I was walking along through a river valley. My liver felt weak. I was afraid of everything. My spirit was distressed and weary. Whether sleeping or awake, I saw illusions and visions. My armpits were constantly drenched with sweat and my eyes continually filled with tears. I searched out famous doctors and Zen teachers in every part of the country, but found no relief. So basically he's 24 or so and he thinks he's gonna die. You know, he's kind of completely Essentially, what he's done, he's, he's sort of unbalanced his, his, um, his energetic well-being, if you like, his, his basic vitality. And so um, the story, as he tells it, is he's wandering about all over the place, desperate to get a bit of help. And he finds a, a hermit in a cave a little bit outside of Kyoto. Now, he, the way he writes the story, it sounds like this guy is totally out there in the deep wilderness. I've... Um, one time I made it a bit of a project to find the cave and, um, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, it's an hour and a half walk out of Kyoto, something like that. Um, it's, 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 you're not ascending deep mountains to get there. I mean, it's out there, but it's not totally remote or anything. Anyway, um, so this guy, this hermit, um, who, um, that part of Kyoto around that time, um, uh, seems to have had um, a kind of a school, a sort of um, a, um, a sort of a, a culture school, 
um, that was very, very interested in, in Chinese culture, primarily Chinese poetry, but also Chinese medical materials. Um, there was a, uh, a retired um, you can still go and visit the building. It's called Shisendo, uh, very beautiful, got an amazing garden and stuff. And it seems that this hermit was a graduate, if you like, of this kind of cultural milieu, this um, atelier, perhaps you'd call it, um, and had gone off and, and, and it seems he was a genuine person. They've got his grave and everything. Um, now, um, and he seems to have had this kind of knowledge around um, particularly the medical and energetic system. So Hakuin claims he met this guy. Um, he didn't write any of this down till 30 years after the event. And the year that Hakuin says he met this guy, this guy actually, the year before, had fallen off a cliff and died. So um, there's a bit of a debate whether Hakuin uses this guy to kind of, as a sort of a fictional figure, to crystallize this stuff that he'd worked out himself or picked up you know, in bits and pieces from here and there, or whether he maybe did genuinely meet this guy and with it being 30 years after the event, he got his dates a bit mixed up. We don't know, we don't know, but this guy did exist anyway. So um, essentially the hermit in Hakuin's account, um, and he, he wrote a whole book about this, um, which we've got translated in Practical Zen. Um, the hermit basically um, uh, gives Hakuin a series of practices which are basically designed to sort of rebalance and reground the system energetically to uh, essentially um, uh, put him back together again. Hakuin goes away. He, um, he spends uh, three years focusing really on this more energetic-based uh, um, work, um, puts himself back together again. Um, <clears throat> he has a solitary retreat on a mountain about eight miles away from from my home temple um, and um, where a lot of this seems to have really come together for him. He's up on this mountain for about two years and um, he talks about literally, you know, dancing and, and, and uh, you know, like a very embodied dimension of, of the practice really taking a, a large part of things. And then um, his father's dying. A servant comes and finds, uh, as a family servant, comes and finds Hakuin on this mountain and gets him to go back to his home village to look after his father, who, you know, in his last months. And then Hakuin moves into that little village temple uh, in, in, where, where he became a monk originally, tiny little place, and basically spends the rest of his life simple within the temple you know, father's popped off by this point, um, word gets out about this enlightened teacher, if you like, in this little village, and students start to come. Now, um, after a fairly small number of people have come, this little tiny village temple is just packed out. There's no space for any more students to, to actually show up. So at this point, people st still keep coming, and Hakuin basically organizes them into groups of three, and then just sends them off uh, to just find places to stay. And so these little groups of three are staying in like old fishermen's huts or shrines, or some of them are even camping out under trees, until you've got this whole kind of landscape around this little village becoming a sort of a homespun, um, ad hoc training dojo, really. Never been anything like it before or since, really. And um, so these guys, these young Zen practitioners, are all living in pretty rough conditions, and some of them start getting sick. So Hakuin starts to teach them the stuff that he's, you know, he puts down to what he learned from this hermit. And, and this kind of evolves into a sort of an architecture of practice, as he puts it. Uh, that he calls the two wings of a bird, where one wing or one dimension of practice is what he calls a recan. So re means, um, it literally means like the veins running through rock, or you could say like the grain in wood, you know, like the threads running through reality, if you like. So recan is like um, um, uh, contemplation of the truth of things, if you like, um, the insight practices. 
and then he combines that with naikan, so nine means inner, and can again means contemplation. That's these practices which are, as it were, fostering this inner integrity, grounding, empowerment, and so on. The idea being that you, you, as it were, you, um, you not only gain this understanding, but you create the the vessel within this body and mind to be able to embody these, so that you can live out um, the um, uh, the uh, the optimal life, if you like, so that you can, as it were, have enough juice in the tank to be able to make a difference in the world, to be able to serve, to be able to um, to actually live out this truth that you've you've encountered. Now, this this formulation of practice seems to have been so potent that uh, within a couple of generations, the students of Hakuin, who, you know, they're coming from this very unofficial, very homespun, ad hoc, rough and ready um, sort of training matrix, they become the Roshis or the, the, the Zen masters of all the major Zen monasteries in the Rinzai school in Japan, complete sort of takeover. And um, scholars have speculated that this, this formulation was so powerful that um, that that's that's why that happened. Now the thing is, uh, in my own experience, um, quite a bit of this has been a bit de-emphasized in modern day Rinzai. And I asked my teacher about this um, one time. He was always very keen on all this, and I found it incredible myself. Um, but I asked him why, you know, and and he said to me. Um, you know, a lot of the younger guys, the younger Zen teachers and stuff, they want to talk about um, Zen and quantum physics and, you know, they want to be kind of contemporary and relevant and all that kind of thing. And and some of this energetic stuff looks a bit sort of folkloric or a bit sort of um, musty, a bit old fashioned, you know. Now, um, uh, in my own experience, you know, I've been a large part of what I've been doing the last 12 years or so since I've been back from Japan has been sort of sharing this 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 uh, particular formulation of practice with people and that's why I wrote Practical Zen to put it out there and so on and um, you know it's been extraordinary it's been uh, 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 it, it clearly works very very well within the stresses and strains of modern or postmodern Western you know um, life with all its uh, chaos and confusion so that that's the basic sort of architecture of just about everything that i'm doing these days um, the embodiment side has been a big big thread of my own practice and uh, i'm very keen on 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 the body and uh, and uh, i've uh, made it a, a sort of a thread within my own life because the body initially was uh, such a problem within it all that um, uh, movement work type practices, yoga type practices, energetic type practices that I've been able to sort of pick up in my own Zen journey. I've sort of brought them all together and made it a bit of a thing, a bit of a thread to, to sort of put them out there for people. And we have a, a, a program for um, Zen yoga teachers, uh, yoga teachers with a Zen, you know, um, thread in the mix, if you like, um, in which I sort of share that stuff. Um, we've got about 300 uh, professional uh, yoga teachers out in the world now, various parts of the world. Um, uh, and uh, I think, almost certainly, with the way life is going, uh, the way that um, more and more of us are spending more and more of our time doing this, you know, living on screens, this uh, embodied dimension of practice is only going to become more and more important. And those Nikan exercises are laid out in great detail, actually, in Practical Zen. And you're, in fact, offering your 64-hour, 60% stream entry uh, weekend intensive that you uh, discussed earlier in the podcast online. So there are lots of opportunities to study with you online. Yeah, it's going to be our first go. We've got one coming up in November. And um, uh, we're, we're doing some kind of dummy runs at the moment and some road testing and so on. Um, it's um, uh, it's clearly going to be um, uh, the the, um, the intentionality is, of the student is going to be very very important in making this work. So I'm I'm looking at ways that we can sort of bolster and help and support that dimension. Um, 
that stuff that you talked about previously, the set and setting is obviously going to be um, less potent. Um, certain people are talking about um, doing things like um, renting a room in a sort of an Airbnb or something. So they they just by themselves with their computer for the 64 hours and maybe things like that might help things along but i suspect a lot of people are going to be doing it within their family matrix maybe the cat's going to be jumping on their head at a certain point or the kid's going to need the nappy changing or lord knows what so it's going to be interesting to see how how we can you know make this um as as potent as possible for people within these constraints um and uh um as i say jury's out we don't know yet, but um, we're going to try. We're going to we're going to move heaven and earth to make it as as good as we can. Great. And what what are those dates? They're coming up quite soon. Those debut ones, right? I don't know. Um, I think it's ba it's basically mid November, I think. And then um, the um, in Zen we we celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment on uh, on December the eighth. Uh, they they say that. Uh, that at dawn on December the 8th, he sees the morning star, and that's the moment when he gets his shift. And so there's, there's you know, that's that's a sort of a big date in the Zen calendar. And uh, the December one is around that period, around, I think, um, December the 8th is the third day or something. So it's kind of like early December and mid-November. Uh, we've, we've got a website called zenways.org. If people are interested, they can sort of look it up on that. Well, Daisan, thank you very much for this fascinating sequel. Thanks. Nice to talk. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.